0: You're listening to the CyberWire Network, powered by N2K. Hello everyone. My name is Andrew Dolan, Director of Cybersecurity Strategic Engagement, Research and Analytics here at the Retail and Hospitality ISAC.
1: And I'm Isaac Rigo, Analyst for Incident Response at RH-ISAC, and this is the RH-ISAC podcast. In our last episode,
0: Kelly White, founder of Risk Recon, shared some interesting research on the correlation between poor cybersecurity practices and successful ransomware
1: attacks. It certainly was good to hear that the measures we're taking are paying off, but even organizations with great cybersecurity hygiene have a chance of being hit with a ransomware attack or any number of the other threats that are out there. So today, we have two members of our incident response working group, Jeff Mercer of Contour Brands and Logan Johnson of Discount Tire. Here to talk about a tool that you can use to prepare for an attack or even just a suspicious event, playbooks.
0: And after that, I sit down with Dan Holt, Vice President of Cybersecurity at Big Commerce, to talk about the topic of his May Cyber Thursday webinar, client-side security challenges. And Isaac, with that, I'll turn it over to you, Logan and Jeff, to get us started.
1: Thanks, Andrew, and thank you to Jeff and Logan for being here today. Playbooks are a confusing topic for a lot of people because they think a playbook has to be some huge, all-encompassing, official document that's always updated. But there's a lot of different definitions about what a playbook is, and it's often depending on the seniority level of the person you're talking to. Logan, you would ask you know, a few different people in different roles like what a playbook is to them. So I'm going to kick it over to you to get started.
2: Wow. Was the answer different depending on who you asked? I asked the CISO, we don't have any. When you ask the engineer, oh, of course we do. Here's the list. And and interestingly enough, it was quite funny, just recently I was actually in the office and on my desk was incident response plan. And pretty sure that's a playbook because it tells you when is an incident, what's the severity of the incident, who do we contact, who are your points of contact, what do you do? When do you involve these individuals? And it was just interesting because I had personal numbers of employees in our IR plan that I was kind of—it kind of caught me off guard because I figured it would be business phone, like you know your desk phone and all that. But mm-hmm. it actually had personal cell phones in there of if you need to get a hold of this person and they do not answer, contact this number. So it was kind of really interesting and caught me off guard. But. That, in my mind, is a playbook. I know, I think we've talked about it a couple times where, yeah, it could be a playbook, but essentially I think it meets the definition. I agree.
3: It it does. I mean, their playbook, I think, sometimes has been borrowed by vendors with regards to automation or, you know, hey, just follow our playbook and everything magically will work and you don't actually have to plan anything. And you know how they try and and convince you you, that you just buy that thing and, and you've done all your work. And it's like, well... You've done some of the work, but, you know, you're, you're completely right in that respect. I think at a high level,
1: it's if this happens, then do that. And the incident response plan yeah. type thing that you described is, at simplest terms, exactly that. If an incident happens, contact the relevant people.
3: It really just comes down to having that documentation multiple levels down. You know, an incident response plan usually has a lot of levels to it. But then, like, what's the incident response plan? Would it involves like, an executive leader versus a regular employee? What is it when it involves a production server that is critical to business infrastructure versus one employee's laptop? And and those are all just parts of the same plan ultimately, but sometimes you can – what I think about playbooks is – it's a fairly broad definition. You can have them be modular. Here's the playbook for how to handle this kind of incident involving this specific thing. Here's the playbook for how to fix – This problem in a security tool that sometimes happens, how to fix it so it works correctly. So it may not even always necessarily be a incident-level incident like, you know, ring all the bells. Sometimes that term, incident, gets used, and it's not really a true security incident. It's a security event kind of thing, and then maybe the reaction there is simply just to check everything to make sure everything is is secure and verify what the, the employee, was this you trying to log in and you were having problems, Or were you not around? And, you know, I had to do that on more than one occasion where, yeah, it was just failed login attempts from the user. And it just happens. You know, we all have that really bad day where you cannot type your password right no matter how hard you try. And it looks shady, quote-unquote, because all of a sudden there's all these password failure entries, and then finally you get in. Well, you know, that's what it's like to to be a person who forgot your password for a while. So that's that's not an incident, but it's scan okay. And a playbook for that should be contact the user, verify this activity, and it should be what to do if the user doesn't respond, and, and decide to what degree you want to escalate that. You know, is there anything else indicating that this could be a compromise, or is it just some password failures and that was it? You know, kind of thing, and and. What level of access does that user have? Is it an admin account? Is it a person who works in finance at a very high level? Or is it just a regular, ordinary employee who just has an ordinary job without any special access?
2: You know, that's actually a great point that you brought up there, because what do you do when that user doesn't answer? I've had it. Overzealous employee working in finance, working at midnight. Mm -hmm. Not normal. That's going to set off a lot of flags. Just like you said, how far do you raise that? What does that user have access to? Does it map up? Yes. But at the same time, if the user is not responding and telling you that it is them, it's kind of scary. But, yeah, you have your playbooks and your set of instructions of hopefully your SOPs, which I would assume is another playbook for your step by step. Hopefully at some point in those, it actually refers to whatever your instant response plan is. Again, until you do that analysis, you never know.
1: So since we're talking about things that would exist in a playbook, can you guys name a few things that would make a good playbook versus a bad, which we'll get and to. And, of
3: course, I immediately forget it. Thanks, Isaac. I can't think of anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'll,
1: off the top of my head, you know, obviously contacts, we've, we've kind of touched on that.
3: Contacts, yes. Part of the context should also include like if you have an incident response company log retainer you need to make sure that that information is included there the type of incident is another thing to consider is it internally discovered and was it discovered by your actual detections or was it discovered by someone else in your company? You know, was it external? That kind of thing. There is so much you can put into it. response it response It's like a huge level thing. A playbook can be, like you were saying, you know, Logan, it can be an SOP kind of thing. The steps to go to in a specific tool in order to look something up. I remember where I've worked in many different places, a lot of the documentation would often be about how to, like, look up an employee's information so that you could figure out which office they were located in. And who is their manager and things like that. And that depends entirely on the company. What else do you think, Logan?
2: It is interesting that you brought that up. The only thing that I thought about the entire time you were talking about personal information and your employee information was resetting MFA and being able to validate those users. That's another playbook that with social engineering, it's crazy how easy some people get socially engineered. And I mean, that's a small playbook right there. Yeah.
3: What are your your requirements
2: to validate somebody calling your help desk? What are you looking for and making sure that you don't give them anything else? You know, you don't know who's on the other line, obviously, but I think that's almost SOP, though. But it is technically your definition of a playbook because it tells you the process um, that should be followed for that type of event. The only thing that I can really think about that... I was laughing when I when they first brought this topic up was you got to review your playbooks every so often to make sure they're still mm-hmm. valid. I was actually looking at our Office 365 stuff and that's one that you have to look at that your playbooks that t- uh, talk about how to do stuff in Office 365 almost like weekly because it seems to changed something.
3: <laughs> yes, <because> unfortunately.
2: <laughs> setting or it's come up and you're like, oh man, where do I go for this? So, I mean, making sure you this URL is in your SOP because you can't do a message trace unless you go to this URL or you can look at the policy, but you can't change the policy here. You have to go here. Mm -hmm. So making sure that's in your playbooks, because if you've got to make those changes on the fly, you got to do an emergency change or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's kind of important that, you know, your SOP because you're supposed to follow your SOP that they're up to date. I mean, that playbook is very real, especially as companies go more and more to the cloud nobody wants their own data center they just want to be in somebody else's data center which is a whole other handful of issues but you have to have the playbooks of what do you do and i think the hardest part about playbooks is it's not all in your head you can't keep them in your head I agree because what happens when jeff gets hit by a bus hey <laughs> what if or, i win the
3: lottery i could win the lottery and just say quit you know
2: but yeah, you you need to be able to have your analyst, your your junior analyst should be able to follow it. I think when I was in the military, it is the same thing. You know, what what happens if nine out of the ten people die? Well, that's why you still have that documentation in the playbook of how to handle something. It's a little bit more stressful in those types of environments, but you still have those playbooks of your status check. Okay, we see this, how do we want to do it? That that I think gets into the part of reviewing them and managing them, and who gets involved. I mean, I guess I'm going to go back to the IR plan. How often do you talk to your public relations department or finance leaders or your CFO? Do they actually know what this plan curtails? They're talking about who manages it, and I think that was one of the late topic for us is, well, does our legal department really know, because they have to have their own part of the IR plan that's not really in the IR plan, because they have yeah,
3: to yeah.
2: the decision tree of, when do we do this? And I think if you look at IR plans, well, we're going to talk to legal then.
3: And that's that's a, a great point there, Logan. Actually, have yeah, many good points. That makes me remember that one of the things you have to think with playbooks and, and any of this documentation in general regarding what to do if, when, X is the audience. And that probably does go also into the idea of maybe having different levels where you have your incident response plan and can't possibly cover every single little tiny nut and bolt, and it shouldn't. It should be something you don't have to update and change because it should be fairly static and it should have things like, for contacting, it's say contact legal and you know, see this document that contains the detailed information of how exactly to contact legal, which then that document in turn would have, you know, the names, addresses, phone numbers, and if necessary, explain who to reach in HR to find out who's illegal, you know, if that's changed, that kind of thing. And the same thing would happen with like a technical thing. Look up this incident in our ticketing system, and then you'd have a separate document that details how to look up the the incident system, because... You do want to make sure that someone knows how to do that who isn't the everyday person that does it, because people do sometimes win the lotteries. They do, Logan. They really do. You probably should have at least two levels of documentation that expect, And, and that way you minimize what you have to constantly review and update. You're absolutely right, you do have to update them every time you change vendors, anytime employee changes. And that also does let you have playbooks that are really only just for your infosec team versus playbooks that might be for the larger audience of the managers, the people you have to report these incidents to or vendors. you know that's another thing I suppose we should should consider like when do you involve a vendor with something if part of the problem is maybe a vendor product like with solar winds? I mean that's probably that's a doozy, of course. But there's also things like the next big Windows vulnerability comes out. And that's a Microsoft thing. But, you know you should have something in your playbooks about how to handle the notifications of emergency patching from, say, Microsoft. And who's your vendor contact at Microsoft? And what is their level of responsibility based on, say, your contract? Definitely a lot to work at. I don't think any one person should try to write it or hold it on their head. I know we need to, as a company in general, anywhere I'm working have those kind of things in place, but I focus on what I can do, and then I try and just make sure that my immediate managers and other people are aware of that. When I did work the post office, they had a lot of documentation about these sort of things. They had an enormous amount of documentation about these are the things, And that's just because it's, it was a federal agency, but also they had had plenty of time to develop this because they had been doing it for many decades. So they had quite a bit of detailed documentation on all sorts of things. So we got to focus really only just on what we needed for our immediate team, which was awesome, but I think most people – especially in the retail industry, for example, don't have that luxury of having that level of bureaucracy at hand. And
1: I want to reiterate what you had said, Jeff, about modularity earlier on. And this is just maybe me evangelizing the difference between a crappy playbook or crappy documentation and excellent documentation is keeping your documentation modular. So that like what you had said, Jeff, is if something happens that involves a vendor, instead of putting like the exact points of contact on the documentation. It says contact the vendor and put a link to where those contacts are documented. Or like maybe legal might be a better example. Like instead of saying contact this legal guy, it's contact the legal department and have a link to where they keep their points of contact updated. So when people leave, that's exactly. Yeah, that is the key to really good documentation is like not being too granular so that you end up having outdated stuff the second you click save.
3: Agreed. It's a constant challenge for all of us who work in that field because we need it and we so often don't seem to have the time to write it ourselves when we, when we are the ones holding the knowledge and then something happens. And if you're lucky, you have vendors who provide fantastic documentation for their products, but not everyone does. And then there's all the custom stuff. So yeah, in mean, one company I worked for, our team used exclusively uh, an internal media wiki. All of our SOPs, as we called them, or standard operating procedures, and everything was documented in there. And then we, because it was wiki, we would write the detailed step-by-step stuff in its own page, and then we just linked to that. That worked great. But that was just our team. It was a small team. It was not part of the much larger corporate documentation because I'm sure they had, why have one solution when you can have 12?
1: And, and this segues into one of the other questions is who manages this documentation? Exactly, you know, yeah. is, it, is it everybody? Is it one? Is, you know, is there a central kind of like documentation organization you know, or
3: team Yeah, if you're trying to get to handle this in your own organization, it can be overwhelming, and I think one of the first things to remember is the tooling does not matter as much as the content, so don't worry about what kind of format the text is in. The text itself is the most important part, and the accuracy, of course. So you could have plain text files in a series of folders on a thumb drive. You could use Word documents. You could use Excel. You could use Google Docs. You could use a, a wiki. You could do it internal. You could do external. There's thousands of ways to do it, and that's something that can be distracting, but that's not what's important. It's best to start with your own immediate thing and, and try to and lead by example, I think. Do it right on your side. Start trying to get out and then evangelize it, like you said, to others with any event security event, incident, you know, big or small, try to make notes to yourself about lessons learned. Uh, I need to document this and, you know, put it on your to-do list. Maybe you don't get to it, but at least you made a note that you do need to do it, and that's a a start. cannot eat the whole elephant, but you can maybe nibble on the toenails every now and then. That sounded gross. I'm sorry.
2: I actually don't even have an answer to that. I would just tell you you need to manage your own documentation.
3: Um, And that's fine, too. I mean, that's what I I was trying to say.
2: Yeah, I think that's where it comes down to. That's a big elephant in the room.
3: It goes back to, I think, what you were saying earlier, meet those people and get to know them and interact with them because that forming connections with people who are going to be part of these things is probably the most important part because you can hammer out documentation and change it as you go, but as long as people start learning that this idea is out there, you have some kind of regular cadence about talking about it, even if it's just quarterly or monthly or yearly or something, starts becoming a corporate habit. And then once it becomes a corporate habit, maybe everyone starts doing it and then it's just this as usual that would be the ideal way for it to work out i think
1: with the remaining minutes that we have how do you show the value of playbooks or how do you extract value
3: i think part of that would be to demonstrate when you have uh, an event security event or incident where having had the, a playbook with enough information would have maybe sped up response time
2: when you think of i'm going to use a playbook of a compromised account and say a threat actor gained access to someone's account in Office 365. How long are they there? If your SOP actually states once you identify that it's a compromised account, how fast you can disable that account or reset the password, that's your value right there. Showing your playbook is we're gonna do this, this and this, this is gonna be the case. That's where you can kind of gain the value of how much would it have cost that threat actor to go out and send a whole bunch of emails to the vendors and to affect them. So I think that's kind of where you can measure your value added. I think uh, I've been in a situation previously where Threat Actor gained access to, say, an OWA of an account and was not only sending malicious emails internally, but they were also sending malicious emails externally, and they were sending them in batches trying to fall under the radar of any of our detection strategies. So when you identify that and you can eliminate that, you can put a value to that because it could be brand damage, it could be maybe more money later on because say they infected some other internal users that you have to go deal with and you can actually put, I mean there's there's so many different ways to do it but that's I think the best way is how fast to mitigate, get rid of the threat and having those SOPs up to date You already have that set standard in place that if I need to contact Jeff to do something, he knows this is what the process is. we got to do it yesterday. That's how you can kind of get your value out of the playbooks is making sure that everybody knows what their job is, what their role is, and how to get something done so that they're not afraid to reach out to me in case they have any questions. Because sometimes security is not the first person to know. It's going to be somebody else doing something funny. And them knowing that, hey, we need to report that to security, then it kicks off a whole nother process, which is those playbooks. So getting to know those people and that they know what to do in the situations, that's kind of a
3: playbook. How do you make sure that other people in your company who work in areas that don't normally work with IT security and would not normally think of very issues being IT security? We're all brand and hospitality and retail-related companies, and so more than likely, there are other parts of your company dealing with that. Maybe half what you need has already been set up, and all you need is some of their documentation, and it's already been written for you. Awesome. You don't have to write it.
2: They already have their playbooks. Like if you really think about it. Yeah. Uh, there's Just give me a prob- copy of
3: that. I'm done. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Link
2: it. That's all you got to do. You'll have cases where you don't think IT security would be involved. I think that was the last CISA exercise. When would your IT actually notify you of uh, this event? When they figure it out or when there's the huge outage? That's all, that's all internal to
1: companies. So if I were to summarize this conversation, it sounds like playbooks exist on a continuum and it's not any one thing. And on that continuum are things that we're already using and familiar with, like incident response plans and just general documentation. Keeping that documentation or playbooks in good shape is important. It keeps them actionable. And you know if they're actionable and easy to use, then everyone's
3: going to have a good time using them. I think the term playbook is certainly it's the topic of this call, but I mean ultimately that's a that's just a name we use, and your company may choose its own nomenclature for how they want to call it. But the important thing is I think we we all agreed is what to do and when to do it and how to do it. That's basically what we're talking about, you know, step instructions, recipes, you know, whatever you want to call them.
2: Well, you're right. It's a buzzword. So it's a buzzword that gets applied to security. Every place has a playbook. Obviously, you can't create a playbook for every event or event type, but more or less they're generalized of here's what you should do.
1: Thank you to Jeff and Logan for being here today. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Fortinet. But stick around because when we come back, Andrew talks with Dan Holden.
0: Today's show is brought to you by Fortinet. Fortinet provides retailers with top-rated cybersecurity solutions covering the expanding attack surface. Advantages include centralized visibility and management, lower TCO, and top performance. Proven threat protection and seamless fabric integration delivers better, faster response to attacks across the entire network, including point-of-sale systems and other devices carrying sensitive information. And Fortinet helps simplify compliance with PCI DSS and other regulations. As digital innovation and the need to provide always-on customer experiences drive network transformation, retail cybersecurity has become more vital. It's essential to have a security partner that can provide simplified security and networking to keep customers' data safe and enable a superior consumer experience. For more information, contact the Fortinet team at retail at fortinet.com. Welcome back, everybody. I'm here with Dan Holden from BigCommerce. Dan is going to be presenting alongside Reflectiz at May's Cyber Thursday. So we've brought him here today to give us a little preview of his session.
4: Hi, this is uh, Dan Holden. I'm the VP of Cybersecurity at Big Commerce. Over the last 25 years or so, 20 of that, my career was spent on the vendor side. And the last five years or so, I've... Pivoted over to the practitioner side. Prior to Big Commerce, I was at Home Depot for a, a small bit, and then um, now net uh, Big Commerce. We're coming up on a year and a half now. A lot of my background has to do with threat intel, but uh, I've covered a lot of different areas in my time uh, and, and tend to have uh, an opinion on most things. So, looking forward to uh, today's conversation. Thanks again, Dan.
0: We're very happy to have you here today. For our members and retailers, and members of the Retail and Hospitality ISAC, why should we care about securing our
4: applications? I think it's not only important for any company really, but especially for retail or any kind of business where the, the brand carries so much weight. I think the fascinating thing about retail brands is that we actually have emotion tied to them. We have history with retail brands. Matter of fact, I mean, a lot of retail brands have 100 years or more history, and so those make those brands really sticky, you know, even stickier than, than some others. And so I think the reputational aspect, the reputational hit for retailers is a very interesting dynamic of security that that other verticals might worry about less. Uh, For example, I spend a lot of time talking about the forgivability. And so for an easy example here, right? if Putin comes after you, you know, hey, that's that's a lot. That's a very high level of attacker sophistication. And even the general public understands that at this point. You know, We've seen attacks from North Korea and, and Iran and Russia, and, and if, if a nation state comes after you, it's difficult to defend against. However, in the case of Equifax, and I don't mind picking on them because I think that's one of those more famous unforgivable breaches where people do have – Sincere emotion and and dislike and and anger associated with that breach and it's going to stick with them for quite some time. So, you know, if we all know that it's it's a potential, you know, when not if scenario uh, in terms of a breach, then, of course, you want a good level of due diligence and you want a level of due diligence that is actually at a, a proper level, not just for your own uh, cyber insurance or internal aspects of measurement or compliance, but you really also want a level of due diligence that is judged by the court of public opinion, the 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 Internet itself. You know, how are people going to feel you know, there's the headline of the breach itself, but how many Breach headlines have you read? And then you know, once you get a paragraph or two in, you're like, oh, well, this isn't that's bad, but it's not terrible. And you know, two weeks from now, everybody will have moved on. Uh, and I think that's kind of that's where you want to be. You want to be in the two weeks, everybody moves on. You do not want to be in the breach scenario where everybody's still talking about it two years later. You, you want the two we- you want the two weeks as opposed to two years. So I think forgivability is absolutely paramount for retail, especially. I couldn't agree more. So. That being said, how does a business
0: determine their fraud tolerance with all the gloom and doom surrounding cybersecurity?
4: Uh well fraud's fascinating to talk about because again it's it's a common issue with retail specifically and it goes back of course as long as retail has been around. It, that's a really good question and I would not pretend to be, you know, an an expert at fraud, but what I would say is that it is a moving target most of the time. You know, obviously this all depends on business and there's a difference obviously with brick and mortar and other types of of retail operations, but it's possible depending on the business model that that is a moving target and, you know so i'm sure some companies have particular aspects of fraud where they've got a goal and they're trying to stay under or at a certain you know uh, limit you know so they're approaching it more as a classic you know six sigma kaizen methodology but there are also if you're moving let's say into a new country or into a new you know geo of any type perhaps you have a higher level of fraud that you're willing to put up with in order to break into a new market and so i think the the difficult and interesting aspect about fraud from that standpoint is the fact that it is not necessarily a classic security or risk model but it's something that's more based around business desires and the tolerance of the business at any given time Uh, so i I think that's a fascinating aspect of it and again depends on the business model our cfo asked me the other day what kept me up at night these days and it it took me a while to come up with a response but it, it ended up being a very simple one I think it's the same thing that's keeping him and everyone else up at night and it's just the unknown. I think from a security standpoint, you know, it's, the unknown is always what scares you. You know, if if you have an incident or an issue with something you knew about, it it doesn't feel as bad. If you have an issue with something you didn't know about, it's as if you weren't even playing the game and that, that feels rotten. And I think in business, it's even worse. You know, there's so many unknowns and I think that's, what a lot of people frankly are having to deal with having to come to terms with there's the mental shock frankly of us as a planet coming to terms with something we really didn't think was that that likely or possible and once once you get over that then it's really about acceptance and we're the most tied together economy in in human history and a lot of that's coming into question right now so with so many unknowns out there and so many scary things
0: and tools out there on the dark web. It's difficult doing our due diligence across all areas, but I've had some members ask me about focusing on things like JavaScript and Magecart. You know, Magecart I've heard can be abused and used for all different types of things, but that the fraud is really prevalent there.
4: Yeah, I think what I find interesting about Magecart, I always say there's a reflection of the real world and the cyber world ukraine and russia are a great example of that geopolitics in general people always have have asked me for years and years oh how do you stay on top of the threat landscape and i you know i said step number one is the news you know the the idea that what's happening in the real world is potentially has a reflection in the cyber world i think is very real and there's a zillions of uh, examples of it in this case mage cart the reason why mention all that is because Magecart reminds me of, you know, classic ATM skimming or even any of the techniques that have been used in the past from a retail uh, checkout standpoint, whether, you know, not just point of sale, but even insider threat, uh, for example, you know, someone taking advantage of your credit card as you're paying for dinner, you know, or at the grocery store, for example. And Magecart is kind of that classic idea, you know, right as you're going to check out, you know, somebody is ripping off your information. I think the interesting part about Magecart is a couple fronts. One, the fact that it's been around for some time. I think application security is a very interesting topic in general, mainly because it's quite different, I think, in many regards relative to other aspects of security. The example being things like cross-site and SQL injection have been around for a long, long time, almost 25 years. You know, with SQL injection, I think next year will be the 25th anniversary mage card's been around now for uh, let's say roughly uh, 7 years or so the idea probably going back even farther than that and so it's something that's been kind of plaguing us for a while and obviously it's still reaping benefits for the attackers otherwise they wouldn't still be using it and i think the next level of it that makes it interesting is given that level of maturity the fact that it is still so popular and it's only getting better and more automated. So, I think we've, you know, seen a big trend with things on underground forums, dark web, etc., with everything as a service now. DDoS as a service has been around for quite some time, but now you've got, you know, Magecart as a service and every other style of attack. From a historic standpoint, so many appsec type attacks are very pointed, they're very specific, you know, it takes a level of investment. It's not just point and click in a lot of examples, as opposed to say DDoS, which could be, but obviously there are application level DDoSes as well. My point is, you know, someone's got to care, someone's got to put some level of investment in those style of attacks. And the more automated they get, the more aspects of it that you can outsource, whether that be software or people, just the, I think that the scarier that gets from a defender standpoint, because. The whole point from a defender standpoint really is to move as, as fast as the attacker is. And the more efficient attackers get, the more difficult that gets for uh, anyone defending. And so, you know, the the maturity aspect of it uh, I mentioned is fascinating and that's why I think it is because it's only making it difficult on everyone else. You know, they're essentially not only growing their capability, but but uh, potentially their ability to carry out more attacks on, on more targets. Uh, so I think the, overall lifespan or life cycle of Magecart is, is actually one of the more interesting stories in cybersecurity today. I'm certainly looking forward to and, and hoping uh, as many folks as possible can join us for the Cyber Thursday event as I talk more about this problem with our partner uh, Reflectus. Thanks for joining me today, Dan. Don't miss Dan's Cyber
0: Thursday webinar, May 19th, where he will share more about how BigCommerce has been able to employ client-side protection tools to manage their application security risks. Anyone who wants to register for that can find the link in the episode description or just reach out to the RHI Sec. So please make sure you subscribe to the RHI Sec podcast in order to get notifications on when new episodes
3: are available.